We're going to look at 10 surprising twists in this passage. And I want you to kind of, as we read along, look for things that are kind of counterintuitive to what you would naturally think would happen. When Jesus shows his lordship all throughout this passage. And Jesus' number one subject was the kingdom of God. And that's where we begin in Mark chapter 4, verse 26. He said, the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises day and night, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what shall we, can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when, when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to bear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with, with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's pray. Father, teach us to marvel and to be afraid in a proper sense. Lord, pray that you would speak and open our eyes to see your greatness and that it would calm our fears and the storms in our lives. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Ten surprises in this text. Um, There's a lot here, isn't there? Isn't it wonderful to get a fresh look at Jesus and what he's doing, what he's about? Well, in this passage, it begins with this parable of the growing seed, and it's one of my favorite parables. And the reason I like it so much is the part where it says, he knows not how, verse 27. It says, the kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground, he sleeps and rises day and night, and the, spr- and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. Our job is to scatter the seed in the workplace, in our neighborhood, as we uh, have opportunity uh, to go to the dentist or even, you know, wherever medical office we go to, always look for opportunities to just plant the seed. That's our job. Plant the seed. And what the Lord's going to do with that, we don't know. And we know this, that when it, when it works, it says, he knows not how. And I, I love that because it's just the opposite of what you would think. I mean, if I think if a good American uh, church growth expert was to write the parable, on the, on the parable of the growing seed, it would probably go like this. The kingdom of God is if a man should find the most cool and correct ways to connect with his audience to show them that the church is relevant and our message is relevant and that there's much more that we agree upon than you think. Don't say anything painful or obvious, but build bridges cultural connections, and after you've done all that, you can rest day and night knowing that the best in modern networking and marketing tools are being used so that the church growth methods work because you know how. The seed produces in the earth just like any other business venture, and savvy leaders with vision that's easily caught and easily taught. That's what it's all about. And, you know, when when I... I was talking with Matt Roberts recently. We meet weekly, and he's planted a church in Germantown. And we, and we, we joke the church is doing well, but none of the things, none of the, the stuff that he thought would work, worked. And he did every possible evangelism trick in the book, from going to Toastmasters, being a part of the, this Frisbee thing, having dodgeball stuff, being a part of basketball leagues and soccer leagues and all these things. And... None of that worked. What worked was a mystery to him. You see, it wasn't what he planned. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't do those things, okay? There are, we have to connect with our culture. We have to go to where they're at. But often our best laid plans, I mean, what does the, what does the passage say? 
He knows not how. That should be a shock to you, but it should be a relief. I don't know how it works. You say, well, how are we going to grow the church? Well, we're going to have to pray. We trust the Lord. But the first thing we learn about the kingdom is it's mysterious. He knows not how. The second thing is even better. It's a miracle. The growth, he says in verse 28, he says the earth produces by itself. That's the Greek word where we get automatic. And auto is this idea of self. And the idea is that, you know, something, it did it by itself. It was a complete, you know, the only two times this is used, this word, is in Acts 12 and in the Old Testament in the Septuagint and Joshua 6, where the, where the walls of the city fell on themselves. It says by itself. And the other one is in Acts 12, where Peter's in prison and he gets to the door or he gets to the gate and it says the gate opened by itself and he walks out. By itself, meaning it's a miracle. The growing, the sprouting, the pollinating, the maturing, it's all in God's hands. But what, what Jesus is saying is it's a miracle. The earth grows by itself. And so this is an incentive for us to pray because it's God who does the work. It's God who builds the church. It's, you know, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. The, second, the next principle that's a, a bit odd here is then Jesus tells another parable, and he tells a parable of the mustard seed. And he says the parable of the mustard seed, when sown on the ground, it's the smallest of all seeds on earth. The idea is that it starts so small, so insignificant, so overlooked, so marginalized, it doesn't seem like it's going to be anything. And that's how the church started, isn't it? They were just these, who were they? You know, and they even made fun of them, called them Christians. And look at the church now around the, around the world. And it's not maybe not taken off so much here as it used to, but boy, the rest of the world in Africa and in uh, South America and Central America, Asia, the gospel is exploding. And now it's becoming this large branches and, you know, isn't it great that, that we, we, who wants to be part of a mustard seed church, you know? It's like, okay, let's be part of something really insignificant. Let's be part, I mean, that's just so counterintuitive. We want to be part of something that, man, it's going to have the biggest splash imaginable. I love when we go biking with the, with the guys and we go up to Lisbon. I take some guys, go up there for the first time. We come to this little podunk store right in the middle of Lisbon. And you look right straight across and we sit on the bench. And there is this hideous looking building. And I say, that's where I met the Lord. This little tiny Baptist church that it, it looks like nothing. You know, it's almost like the picture that Michael held up. I mean, man, you were in the middle of nowhere. By I mean, you're five hours in the Pacific from, from Hawaii, and it looked like a little barn in the middle of nowhere. I mean, <laughs> that's a great picture. It just, it, it left me feeling like, wow, I would be just overwhelmed being there. Like, what am I going to do? But anyway, that was kind of like where I grew up. And I didn't even know where I grew up was in the middle of nowhere until I brought my friend home from college. And, and he, the second day, he was so bored and he looked at me and said, you live in the middle of nowhere. And it was the first day it really dawned on me. I guess I really come from a small town. <laughs> I didn't even know. God starts off things small, and that's how the gospel begins in our own hearts. It starts small, and then it, the seed bears the fruit, and it, you know, first the blade, 
then the ear, and it just matures. And so we want everything now instantly. It doesn't work like that. And so then Jesus is going to illustrate his mission's experience here for the disciples. And he says to them, let's go over to the other side. Let's see this kingdom at work. Jesus has a target audience, you see. Let's, let's go to the upper crust. Let's go to the influential. Let's go to the gifted and talented. Let's go to a place where there's a college. And Is any of that going on here? I mean, do we have a picture of the, the Sea of Galilee? Did we find one of those? We got that? We got Jesus on my cross of taken. Well, if we don't have it, I see if we can come up with a pic of... Uh, <laughs> Well, anyway, the idea is that you have the Sea of Galilee, and they're up around Capernaum, and there's a 13-mile uh, lake, and it's seven miles wide, 13 miles long, and they go completely, here we go, so they go from the northwest down to the southeast. It's like the furthest distance across the lake, okay? And so Jesus says, let's go to the other side. I mean, I'm thinking, oh, it's just a few miles. This is a long journey, okay? So they go to an area where Jesus is picked for them, to, and he picks like he goes after the loneliest, the most challenging, the most scary, the most written off. It would be like saying, hey, today we're going to go to Alcatraz, for, for our missions experience. Let's go to the other side, except this is scarier than Alcatraz, because at least in Alcatraz, they're behind bars. But this guy, I mean, he is naked, and nobody can wish, subdue the guy. I mean, the guy is strong as could be. They've tried the, the strongest chains they can come up with. No problem. The guy just unshackles himself. And Mark is describing him to us as usually like if somebody's really really messed up, you say, boy, he's really, you know, he's, he needs to be set free. This guy is so messed up, they say, no, no, he really needs to be restrained because he's going to hurt somebody. And he is hurting himself. He's a cutter. Long before cutting was fashionable, this guy's taking stones and cutting himself. This guy had uh, a reputation, an influence, all right. He's not the guy that we would have chosen to invest in to reach the Decapolis, these 10 cities. You know, this is a, a Gentile area, just Decapolis. I mean, that's two Greek words for 10 cities. And what do they have there when they get over there? Pigs? Is that an area where typically Jews like to hang out? N not hardly. And Jesus says, let's go to the other side. You know, let's go over to Alcatraz, and we're going to reach this legion guy, man of the tombs, and we're going to do a great work over in the Decapolis, and we are going to take this guy and use him to be the missionary in Decapolis, the furthest guy we would have picked on the entire planet. And Jesus has marked him out. So that has a few things that are absolutely shocking for us. Should we write anybody off? We say, ah, oh, that guy, you know, he's, he's in it is. He's in it. I mean, the people that kept inviting Jesus over and like Jesus are tax collectors and prostitutes. Like, you know, abortion owners and abortionists, you know, like the, the most crazy people. You say, oh, what you? nobody should talk to them. Nobody should love them. There's no hope for them. This guy was fettered on his feet. Night and day, he's crying out with screams and shrieks, cutting himself. 
It's a a scary sight. And can you imagine being on a boat with Jesus? And so I think the point here for us to think about is as we're on this radical ride with Jesus, and he says to us, let's go to the other side. Let's look at this world differently. There's neighbors that we don't want to cross the street to the other side or even next door in the fence. There can be some scary people or maybe that cubicle that's right next to you are these people that, man, they are difficult. And so there's this element in us that we know in typical conversations um, where the pain threshold is. Okay, and the pain threshold, uh, Rico Tice talks about it in his book, Honest Evangelism. And the pain threshold is that we all know where conversations need to begin and end. And we know what, what is really safe. It's this little bit of bandwidth. And there's socially and culturally, we are dialed in. And you are not allowed to move the dial beyond that. Okay, you go into now questions that cross the pain threshold And it's that now you're making them uncomfortable because you're bringing them into the presence of God. You're asking a question that's deeper on a heart level issue. We know when we've crossed the pain threshold. When was the last time you crossed the pain threshold with somebody? I mean, they went on the boat to cross a serious pain threshold, but Jesus rocks our boat. And so this is a challenge for us to think about, okay, where can I do this more to get uncomfortable with Jesus? So they're, they're on this boat, and the next shocking thing is this windstorm that arises. The waves are breaking into the boat. Now imagine, this boat is not real big, and if you've seen uh, Rembrandt's picture, I should have had a slide of it, but it actually got stolen from a museum. It's still one of these great mysteries. They, if you can find Rembrandt's uh, picture of the sea there, you, you'd be... You'd be quite valuable in the world today. This thing was stolen, hasn't been returned, but it's this incredible picture of you see the water just crashing over the boat. I mean, I've only been on, you know, I was not a fisherman by any means, but my father-in-law has a boat, and I've been on a boat a few times. And and if you go out and it's kind of choppy, when you come back off the boat and you come back on land, you're still adjusting. It's like you're still, your equilibrium, you're still expecting the waves, you know? And, and sometimes you can get really sick, you know, if you don't take proper things before you go. And have you ever had that kind of experience? I mean, have you ever so, like, I remember as a kid, I would so enjoy getting into skiing, and I love the moguls and stuff. And I can remember going to bed at night and, my, and close my eyes, and I'm instantly, I'm still moving. I mean, I'm still, like, my bed is moving because I'm just so into this skiing experience. Well, that's what, these guys are into this. And all of a sudden, it's just as flat as this, what I'm stepping on. Jesus says, shh, to the creation. And all of a sudden, it's completely still. And now you've got to imagine they're just completely dizzy, like, what did he just do? And now it's completely stopped. Now, you know, I think I'm special when I try to show people my tricks I can do with my dog. You know, I can make Molly sit down, you know, rock and roll, you know, or make her, you know, lay over and play dead. Anything for food. 
That's about the extent of my mastery over the creation, okay? It's very, very minuscule, okay? Jesus wants to show his disciples his mastery as Lord of the universe. That what's so shocking here to me, I mean, you can just imagine these guys telling the story, can't you? Imagine when they come back and they're like, you're not going to believe this. Storm's coming. It's crazy. I mean, it basically, there's this huge wind funnel, the way that the Sea of Galilee is set up, and you've got the Jordan River coming through it, and there's this wind funnel that comes down, and it's a super deep lake, and, you know, I could give you all the technicalities and stuff, but from the, from the snow-capped mountains of Mount Hermon, this, this, this gorge acts as a funnel where the wind blows through these surrounding mountains, and it creates these amazing storms. Well, you can imagine they're telling the story, they're telling the story and you're like, you're not going to believe this. Guess what Jesus is doing? He is asleep in the stern. He is, he's on a cushion asleep. How can he do that? Because he's God. He's in control. He's human, but he's God. And so they're scared to death, and Jesus quiets this storm, and the wind and the waves are instantly stopped. Jesus is able to do that. Now, Jesus is going to do the same thing in the next chapter. He's going to do that. He's going to illustrate the same exact principle with this man who's crazy, right? And he, nobody can subdue him. And you just contrast verse 4 with verse 15 in chapter 5. And you try to get your arms around that, that no one can tame him. That's the word there. No one can subdue him. It's the word tame, meaning he's an animal that can't be tamed. And then you get to verse 15, and he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And the same response of the disciples when this happened is they're afraid, and it's a noun and a verb of phobos, a great fear, a mega phobos, double fear in the Greek of they feared a great fear is literally what, it, what happened when, this, when the boat all of a sudden got still. And now the crowd, when the crowd sees this man clothed and in his right mind, what does it say that the crowd does? They're afraid because they realize God is breaking into this world. God's in our boat. God just took this crazy person and calmed him, and he took the sea and calmed it. Jesus is a lot bigger than my preconceived notions. So Jesus is bringing his shalom, and this demoniac finds shalom in Jesus, and he's made whole. Same with this storm that was untamable and now has made tame. This is all shocking. And so as Becky Pippert in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, which really helped me this week, um, because... Um, well, she says this, after seeing this shattering personality, which fills the gospel, having gotten even a glimpse of him, I could never, ever say with a casual indifferent, oh, how interesting. Oh, how interesting this is about Jesus. No, this is utterly shocking. There's, there's nobody like him. And so this is helpful because we have these little thoughts about Jesus, and we're often scared to, to share our faith. And the chapter that really helped me this week, because 
I was actually struggling with some pretty big anxiety this week, and I woke up early one morning before five, and I was like, I can't sleep. I got all these things spinning around. You realize all these people, and I'm looking at some of you. I haven't responded to your emails, and I just have to apologize that they're, they're coming in faster than I can get them out to you, okay? And I realized that I can't, I can't do everything, right? I'm not God. And so, and I was sitting there reading this story, and I was blown away by her chapter. It's just titled, Jesus the Lord. And she begins her chapter telling a story about she was part of a team in Stanford University. She's there for a week doing evangelism. And she meets this girl named Lois. And, and Lois is, is, she says, was bright and sensitive. She's skeptical about God. And she says that, you know, she invited her to come to this Bible study. And she said she would come and examine the primary source material as critically as she would a Marxist manifesto. Okay, I'll come, but the Bible won't have anything relevant to say to me. And then she discovered that, that Lois was living off campus with her boyfriend, Phil. And so to her great surprise, both Phil and Lois show up at the Bible study, and she had already picked to speak on John 4 with the woman at the well who's living with her boyfriend, okay? And so she's realizing, uh-oh, this is going to be trouble. And so she counted all the verses, and she wanted to make sure that she didn't want to offend them, so she would have the reading done before it ever came around to them. But lo and behold, somebody in the middle started the reading and messed everything up. And so she says, to my dismay, a girl three seats away from Lois started reading. I discovered later it was Sally's twin sister who happened to be sitting next to me. Then Lois read the portion. She comes for her turn to read. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For the man you're living with is now not your husband. This is the first experience ever of reading scripture. Her eyes grew as big as saucers while I hid behind my Bible. I must say, this is a bit more relevant than I expected. And so the next day, she got talking to Lois, and she said, is there any reason why you can't become a Christian? And she said, no. She said, well, I can think of one, I said. What are you going to do about Phil? And then we talked directly about how becoming Jesus or becoming a Christian isn't merely fire insurance. It's a relationship that affects every aspect of our lives, value, lifestyle, sexuality, and on she goes. And then she says that after dinner, the students who attended the Bible study stopped me in the hall saying they were fascinated by the study on Jesus. Then we heard a noise and turned to see what it was. And here came Lois slowly walking down the corridor, carrying several suitcases and smiling with tears streaming down her cheeks. I silently thanked God. I too felt the tears slip down. Suddenly, have I seen a more graphic picture of what it means to become a Christian? Every, everyone began asking why she had left home. Oh no, I haven't left home. I finally found my home, she replied. You see, today I've become a Christian. She said that one decision had far-reaching effects. The same night, three girls on the floor decided to get right with Christ. Another girl who had assumed she was a Christian realized she wanted no part of it if it demanded total commitment. The next day, Lois was told she could move into a dorm and discovered her new roommate was a dynamic, mature Christian. Three months later, her boyfriend, Phil, became a Christian, and he too grew rapidly. He had been hostile over her conversion and furious for her for moving out. But after he was converted, he told her, thanks, Lois, for loving, a God, loving God enough to put him first instead of me. Your obedience affected my eternal destiny. 
And then she said this. She said, Lois's conversion was profound for her friends as well as for her. She recognized that being a Christian had tremendous implications. She came to see that if Jesus is Lord, the only right response to him is surrender and obedience. He is Savior and he is Lord. We can't separate his demands from his love. We can't dissect Jesus and relate only to the parts of him we, we like or need. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven for managing our own lives. It would be impossible for Lois to thank Christ for dying for her and yet for her to continue running her own life. You see, if Jesus is Lord, our problems get a whole lot smaller. And so reading about Lois actually helped me with my anxiety because I realized Jesus is Lord. And I got my eyes off of my problem. You see, this passage is a shocker of showing us how great Jesus is. And so what's sad, though, is not everybody is going to receive him and embrace him. The shocker of the, the people, when they saw this man in his right mind in 515, they asked him to leave. Imagine asking Jesus to leave your town. You see, they love their livelihood more than the living God. 2,000 pigs was a lot of bacon. And if Jesus stuck around, it wasn't going to be business as usual. The stock of pigs took a mighty fall. And they couldn't see the eternal story. They couldn't see the bigger picture. They saw that Jesus had broken into history here, or God had broken in and had compassion on this soul, and now these pigs were all dead, and they didn't like it. And so the crazy shocker is, who is in bigger bondage? And as the story ends, who has the greater shackles? Who has the greater chains? It's the people who beg Jesus to leave. And these begs don't, there's five begs in this passage, and they don't really make a lot of sense. You've got a man begging that's the strongest guy on the planet, begging Jesus, not, you know, asking him, you know, when this demons speak out, what do you have to do with me? I, I beg you, by God, don't torment me. And they begged him earnestly to be sent into the countryside. And they begged him to be sent into the pigs. And then the people come and beg Jesus to depart from their region. But the last shocker of all is when this Man's clothed in his right mind. He now begs Jesus to go with him. And Jesus sends him back home to declare how much God has done for you. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus often wants you to stay home? Isn't that a shocker? We think, well, we're going to need to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, and, and we should, but, but we've got to start here, and we've got to be bright lights here. J.C. Rao put it like this. He said, there are lessons of profound wisdom in these words. The place that Christians wished to be in is not always the place that is best for our souls. The position that they would choose if they could have their own way is not always the one Jesus wants them to occupy. I can't help but remarking in connection with our Lord's words in this passage that it is questionable whether people do not sometimes act unadvisedly in giving up a secular calling in order to enter the ministry of the gospel. In plain words, I doubt whether men who have been suddenly converted to God in the army, the navy, the law, or the merchant's office do not sometimes desert their professions with undue haste in order to become clergymen. Home is the place above all others, all others where the child of God ought to make his first endeavors to do good. 
So he goes on to say, let's pray that God will guide us in all, in all our ways after conversion and not let us go wrong in our choices or to make hasty decisions. The place and position that's most healthy for us is the one in which we are kept the most humble, most taught our own sinfulness, drawn to Bible and prayer, and led most to live by faith and not by sight. It may not be what we like. I mean, this guy could have been celebrity hero traveling with Jesus and gone on the nice mission circuit. And instead, God sent him back right into his community. Let us remain in our calling, is 1 Corinthians 7, 24. Let us remain where God has called us. And so we want to shine right where God places us. And God can use anybody if he can use this zombie-like guy that was filled with 6,000 is, is, a, is a, the number of, of foot soldiers and what legion really meant. So there's all of these demons in him. And yet Jesus will use him to accomplish his purposes. He can use you and I. And so he says, let's go to the other side. Let's get out of our comfort zones and be used by him. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is the one himself who followed his father and was obedient? And it, and it says that he was the one that was bound and shackled. They bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. He submitted even to death to save us from our sin. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our obedience. Let's follow him wherever he leads. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Give us the grace to trust you. Thank you that you are Lord over demons, Lord over disease, Lord over danger, Lord over everything, Lord over our problems, Lord over our worries. And so, Lord, where we lack this morning, may we trust you and embrace you as our all in all. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.